Good evening, everybody. Uh, and welcome to this Human Rights Day event, uh, which was scheduled originally for the 10th of December last year, uh, but Mouzoni was, uh, had, had a date with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, and what could we do? Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all um, to this event. My name is Bronwyn Manby. Uh, I'm a senior policy fellow here with LSE Human Rights and the Middle East Centre. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be able to welcome Muzoni Wanyeki to the LSE today. I have known and worked with and admired Muzoni for almost 20 years, uh, and I'm excited to hear her reflections on her career as an African human rights activist. The title of her talk, as you know, is Rethinking Human Rights, a Southern Response to Western Critics. And Muzoni is amongst the people who are best placed to make this argument to have this discussion, having worked across the human rights world, both in Kenya and internationally. Currently, she's the director, the regional director of the Open Society Foundation's Africa Regional Office. And prior to joining the Open Society Foundation, she was Amnesty International's regional director for East Africa, the Horn and the Great Lakes from 2014 to 2017 as part of Amnesty International's uh, decentralization program, the first director appointed for, uh, in the region and from the region. She served uh, as director of the Kenya Human Rights Commission, one of Kenya's leading human rights NGOs, and before that as director of the African Women's Development and Communication Network, FEMNET. She's been on an advisor or board member of many organizations, including the Africa Leadership Center at King's College here in London and with the University of Nairobi. She was a columnist for the East African and is now a columnist for the East African Review. She also has a doctorate from SOAS, uh, quite recently acquired, uh, with the title African Solutions for African Problems, which particularly looked at the impact uh, of the norms established within the African Union's Constitutive Act uh, and on member states' compliance with those norms. In this lecture, she's going to draw on these three decades of human rights activism and push back against the Western critique of human rights to formulate her own assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of the human rights movement in Africa and the Global South. Uh, for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag is hashtag LSE human rights. Please put your phones on silent uh, and this evening's event, you should know, is being recorded. Uh, so if you ask questions, you will be on the record. Uh, and it will be available uh, as a podcast and is also being live streamed. Uh, Maldoni is going to speak for 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, and we'll then have until 8 p.m. for questions and answers. And after we close, there's a reception in the lobby area just outside. So please do stay for a chance to discuss with Maldoni and amongst yourselves about the issues that she raises. Thank you very much. Please give Mudani a warm welcome. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, first of all, thank you, Bronwyn, and thank you to LSE for having me, and also for kindly, despite the irritation I caused, <laughs> um, postponing this from December to now. Um, I didn't take the invitation lightly. As she said, at the last minute, we had to go and meet with uh, the new... Prime Minister and various government people in, in Ethiopia, and I couldn't say no to that. Um, anyway, it's nice to be with you all here. Um, before I begin, just to, to let you know, I don't know if there are any Kenyans in the audience. No? 
Well, I woke up this morning to the news that um, Binyavanga Wainaina, who is a Kenyan writer, um, had passed away last night. And when I was thinking about this presentation, it made me think, even though he was someone who never was involved in the sort of gay community, gay organizing as such, he certainly was very involved in um, an opening post the transition in Kenya in terms of really giving a whole new generation a sense of freedom, a sense that a career within the arts was possible. He won the Kane Prize, used the money with a bunch of motley people <laughs> to start this journal, Kwani, which really set off a sort of an explosion in creative expression in Kenya and much later became, you know, constantly was bursting onto the scene with one, one story drama or another. First, when he came out as a gay African writer, then when he came out with, or maybe it was the other way around, came out as someone living with HIV, then came out as getting married to his big love. And this might sound very ordinary in some contexts, but in our context, um, it certainly was a very, very brave thing to do. Um, and he certainly expanded boundaries. So I wanted to just open by reflecting on who he was. Um, he's someone who I knew well, even though we had uh, been quite estranged for about a decade. So to all the sort of Africans and people from the global south who do expand the boundaries of freedom, I'm really happy to be here to give this lecture. Well, not a lecture. I'm not really an academic, uh, despite having a, a PhD, uh, but just some thoughts and reflections. So I was asked to speak about the Western critique of human rights as someone who's worked almost all of my adult life to advance respect for human dignity in Africa, using human rights as a frame or a lens on the same. The words frame and lens are instructive because I think there are many frames and many lenses to bring to bear on any given problem. The choice of human rights as a frame and as a lens is not necessarily ideological or has not been, I think, in my case and in the case of the broader human rights community that I belong to, I think it's been a very practical choice. I'll say more on that later, but I think the advantages of using human rights as a frame and a lens are obvious. First of all, in a sense, the idea of human rights is normative. And by norms here, I don't just mean sort of, um, what I really mean is sort of legally binding obligations on states that are treaty-based, whether in ever-evolving national constitutions or in the growing body of regional and international treaties. Norms, though, are iterative. And I think that's another really important point to make. They evolve due to the demands of practice and demands coming from people on the ground. And in turn, they shape practice as they themselves are defined. So norm definition of human rights has never been a linear or a literal manner. It's occurred over time with demands on states arising really from real struggles of citizens on the ground. But they have also made demands on all entities beyond states. And those of you who were young at the time of the uh, big, famous Vienna conference, 
know that they have made demands not just of states, but if you recall the sort of claim at the time in which the Southern uh, women's movements really participated were that the personal is political and that states, that norms, states are also responsible for regulating behavior within personal spaces in terms of the protection of individuals, not limitations on people's entities, on people's um, freedoms. So norms are not linear, norms are not, uh, or norms don't evolve in a linear manner, they're not literal, they make demands on entities beyond states, including the private sector and individual entities, that impede on human dignity. But they are also aspirational, and a reflection of a, of a lived experience, a way of making claims on the states and the non-state entities they govern, in a manner that will not only be heard, but be seen as legal and therefore, quote unquote, legitimate, even when realizing those claims is so fraught with difficulty and resistance. Obviously, rights in a normative sense are not the only way to make or realize claims, but they are a useful one, and I come back to the idea of rights as being practical. So given that kind of practical approach to why use the lens or frame of human rights, why has there been so much critique? I think there have been, of course, very, very many Western critics um, coming, and I think trying to respond to sort of demands to sort of um, <clears throat> the imperial uh, sort of argument against rights. But most attention has been paid recently to Stephen Hopgood's 2013 The End Times of Human Rights from Cornell. And just a confession, Stephen headed the doctoral school at SOAS when I did my PhD and was very kind to me. So it was not, this is in not in any way uh, a critique of what he or the institution that he works in, um, the school, the little uh, center that he works in, are focused on. I'm not doing justice to his argument, but in a nutshell, I think what he was trying to do was really look at what happens or why has this happened in the face of the inability, for example, of the International Criminal Court to live up to its promise to provide justice to survivors of international crimes, hold those to mo most responsible to account, and serve as a deterrent moving forward. I think he was also trying to sort of address the fact that in the face of the evident gap between what was promised as the emerging norm on the responsibility to protect and the bodies of people from Palestine to Syria to Yemen, not to mention the Eastern DRC, the uh, Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Sudan, and in the face of that, this sort of big argument that had evolved over the ICC, um, its use, regime change, um, and so on, to his mind, what he was trying to say, I think, was that the belief that we've moved on in a post-Cold War, Cold War world to a world of shared global values and accepted rules of the game is evidently and patently proven untrue. He explained this by positing that, in a way, the secular quote-unquote religion of human rights has been undone by both its professionalization and its reliance on or use in the Western imperial and interventionist project. 
He noted, too, its continued focus primarily on civil and political rights violations at the expense of economic, social, and cultural rights violations, as well as the profound failure of the adherents of the human rights movement and proponents to, regret, to address the vast divergence amongst those in the human rights community in the global north and those in the global south in terms of resources, influence, and control. So what's the problem with that? Because all of that, of course, is true. And I guess what I would say to that is that none of it, it may be true, but none of it is necessarily new. Let's refer for a moment to but three African critiques of the theory and practice of human rights. As early as 2007, the Tanzanian legal scholar Issa Shivji had in his book on the concept of human rights in Africa pointed to the pitfalls of the focus of human rights first in overly legalistic or worse philosophical terms rather in political and social terms as a means to engage the political and a means to engage the social. Second, he had pointed to its absolutist and centralizing terms rather than human rights being seen of and conceived of as an expression of a means towards an intellectual and political commitment. It says our work was followed by two books in particular by Kenyan Mikhail Mutua, which built on his seminal article, Savages, Victims, and Saviors, The Metaphor of Human Rights, followed very quickly uh, by two books, Human Rights, A Political and Cultural Critique, and Human Rights NGOs in East Africa, Political and Normative Tensions. In these, Macau reiterated the points below. First, that the theory and practice of human rights by the West was Eurocentric, civilizing, and a crusade reliant on the overly simplified narrative about the savage, i.e. bad Africans, the perpetrators, victims, i.e. good Africans, and saviors, needless to say, non-Africans. In addition, he argued that the diffusion and rise of human rights post-Cold War as linked to equally Eurocentric civilizing crusades um, were as linked to equally Eurocentric civilizing crusades as to liberal democracy, not necessarily social democracy, and certainly not socialism, um, and that this posed real questions for African human rights practitioners as to their legitimacy, their social base, and their political ends. Further to that, Ugandan anthropologist, political theorist Mahmoud Mamdani went further post-2008, and he had a flurry of articles, briefs, newspaper articles, who was genuinely annoyed by the lack of economic and political grounding of, in particular, the Western focus on Darfur in the Sudan, and he was equally genuinely perplexed by the Kenyan effort towards individual criminal responsibility for the electoral violence of 2007 to 8. In Mamdani's view, this was all indicative of what he termed human rights fundamentalism, which he saw as being focused on the legal, overly focused on the legal, as uh, Shivji had argued earlier, um, and i.e. individual criminal responsibility rather than the political. And by the political, he meant here 
grievance as mitigated by structural reform. Human rights fundamentalism, in his view, accounted solely for the less interesting question of why political protagonists would mobilize around difference and grievance, rather than to him the much more fundamental and interesting question of why citizens respond so easily to such mobilization. In this way, he argued that in the long term, focus on individual criminal responsibility will only and always fail to deter mass violence in permanent ways. All of which is to say, I guess, in the end, that Hopgood no doubt sparked off a necessary and useful debate amongst Western human rights practitioners and theoreticians a cursory check while I was writing up these notes showed that he's been cited in the Western human rights literature no less than 330 times, and that's only in the academic literature. It's instructive that the head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, felt compelled to address him, not any of these other theoreticians that I've mentioned, in his 2014 rebuttal in the New York Review of Books, the Dutch section of Amnesty International, where I used to work, responded to him with an entire edited collection debating the end times of human rights in 2014. Needless to say, no African featured in that collection. But on the ground, within the human rights community and among practitioners, what he had to say wasn't new. Note that Shivji, Mutua, Mamdani are actually engaged scholars. They're all originally from the African left. They are deeply um, involved in consulting, providing advice for um, some of the struggles that are ongoing on the ground. Here, I would mention that Shivji's work has fed into land reform efforts all across the region. Macau Mutua was actually my board chair when I worked at the KHRC. Um, and a very serious kind of strategic thinker in terms of how the KHRC could render itself useful to people on the ground. And Mamdani was, was, yes, a serious critic as concerns the Kenyan ICC cases, but yet he was a member of the African Union's Commission of Inquiry into South Sudan, and his dissenting opinion on that commission's report did not uh, mitigate against the need for accountability in the South Sudanese case. So none of them, despite their critique, can be said to have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. What they're really trying to do, I would say, is twofold. First is change the practice of human rights by non-Africans, the practice of human rights. And second, to challenge so as to advance the practice of human rights by Africans themselves. In short, they take as a given African agency as concerns human rights, and their theorizing is based on the same. Hopgood's critique, I would say, using him as the sort of straw man in this argument, is thus much, much more about Western thought and practice than about African thought and practice. When the Africans I mentioned tried to do both, with Shivji situating his critique in his critique of Western investments in African civil society as a whole, the very notion that externally financed civil society could be a bulwark against and a constraint on state power when the only real constraint on state power comes from continual organizing within, around, outside of the state. 
With Mutua, what he has done is contributed to theorizing the Af African human rights practice, and Mamdani has remained ever alert to the global imperial project and imbalances between the global north and south. We tend to forget, as I mentioned, how strong his dissenting opinion was on the South Sudanese case as concerns the worst of the South Sudanese protagonists. Which brings us back to the question of human rights as a frame and a lens in Africa. First, let's challenge the notion that normative developments have been absent African and other global southern agency. As we all know, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, adopted as it was in 1966 and entering into force in 1976, was negotiated with the presence and participation of all by then independent African member states of the UN and reflected their common independence clarion call to end poverty, illiteracy, and disease. The African Charter on Human and People's Rights, adopted in 1981 and entering into force in 1986, similarly reflected African perspectives on human rights, including the question of collective rights. The Protocol to the Afri African Charter on the Rights of Women in Africa, adopted in 2003, entering into force in 2005, could legitimately be claimed as the product of the African women's movement and is already being used in phenomenal ways to advance rights in national jurisdictions. Here, one of the organizations I worked for, Femnet, founded the coalition, the Solidarity for African Women's Rights, which led to the speediest ratification of this protocol and the use of it in questions of family law, personal law, across uh, jurisdictions as vast as or as separated um, as Mali and Kenya. All of these normative developments, coming back to the question of rights and norms as being sort of iterative and arising from practice, arose from needs on the ground and then fed back to and are still being used to address those needs on the ground. They make clear that indivisibility has never been in question by those Africans who use the frame and lens of human rights for their work. As for the practice of human rights, as I mentioned where I used to work, the KHRC was founded by the Kenyan left, the underground, in a decision made by the left to come above ground um, at the tail end of the Moy dictatorship. That's where the human rights movement from Kenya comes from. The students, the academics um, involved who had been in exile returned. The KHRC played a huge role in the constitutional change movement of the 90s and then the political transition of 2002, after which it moved to establishing not just a monitoring and documenting human rights violations, making the case about civil and political rights violations, but then shifted to supporting community-based networks across the country, all of which were based on existing formations, and the role of the KHRC was really to facilitate their organizing and mobilizing on issues of concern to the ground. So you would find, for instance, at the coast and in the Rift Valley, land was central to what those networks did. Um, in northern Kenya, women's rights and children's rights were central to what they did, as well as restitution for the kind of post-independence gross and systemic violations they had faced. 
and questions of unequal representation. So in this work, the question of that separation um, between economic, social, and cultural rights and civil and political rights just simply didn't pertain. The third example I would give is Amnesty International's Global Transition Program, which Bromwell mentioned I happen to be privileged to be one of the pioneers for as it was moving to the ground. The point of the Global Transition Program was to move resources and power to the Global South. But beyond hiring from the region, an obvious thing to do, um, for its researchers and campaigners, beyond opening the regional offices, um, there, what the transition really led to was a recognition that while the evidence-based approach to documentation, naming and shaming, was still necessary, a strictly legal approach was completely insufficient for what we were facing on the ground. It was too black and white, uh, literally, um, but also it was too much about right and wrong. What we realized increasingly is that the research methodology that we were using needed to change. Yes, human rights practice needs to continue to be survivor-centered, victim-centered, but what we were finding when we were giving these reports to governments on the ground, they're like, oh, we're all too happy to deal with your little N, your small little population of victim survivors that you've interviewed, um, but we fail to see how this translates to the big N. Like, what can you tell us about what this means for the whole population of people who went through, I don't know, internal displacement or whatever the question might be? What we found, too, was just saying a violation had happened or proving a violation had happened, evidencing a violation had happened, despite recommendations, was completely unhelpful to the process of policy change um, within the countries, not, of course, mainly around questions of economic, social, and cultural rights, but also sometimes in the case of civil and political rights. And there were questions repeatedly from governments in terms of their receipt of our reports about moving from the problem to the solution. Thirdly, what we found was despite right of reply in terms of your people have done this or not done this, and that is a violation, um, <clears throat> that is not always the best theory of change. There were questions being raised uh, uh, repeatedly about old forms of solidarity, amnesty being known notoriously for bombarding governments with letters from concerned people all across the planet. Letter writing, we found, was sometimes good for individual cases, maybe a detention, maybe a rendition of an individual. But again, it was completely unhelpful to questions of policy uh, and practice change. We also found <clears throat> that failure to engage as routinely and systematically with African governments as we tended or as Amnesty had tended to do with Western 3D arrangements on the ground and externally um, worked against us. Um, the de facto and implicit understanding being that Western 3D arrangements care about human rights and have influence in all circumstances, which is untrue. And the converse of that, that African governments don't care about human rights and can't influence their own uh, conduct and practice. To conclude, I think there are many frames and lenses from which to achieve change that advances the common search for human dignity. 
I see no problem personally with the frame of human rights or the lens of human rights. If, if the norms of human rights amount to a secular religion, at least they can be said to be a broad and tolerant religion to which whatever structural depth desired can be reached. Um, the problem is I think they're often taken at a very surface level and not pushed to the question of deep structural change or even more mid-level policy change, as I've mentioned. But I do think they can go to that depth, bearing in mind the feminist, leftist, and pan-African roots of many of the African human organizations that exist today. I think I'd conclude by sort of saying, if there's anything that I wanted to get across, it's that African agency exists, that we are perfectly capable of seizing and instrumentalizing this particular lit frame and lens for our own ends. So let's take cognizance of the critique, African and other, to make us all better at doing what we claim to be doing, which is acting in all of our best interests towards a brighter day. And with that, I would stop. Thank you, Mazzoni. Lots to think about there. Uh, we will, of course, now uh, take some questions and have a discussion. Um, I think we would also welcome uh, positions from people, but as long as they are short, comments too. Uh, and uh, we will uh, set up a conversation. Yes, please, in the front. Thank you. Can you introduce yourself briefly before you speak? Robin has a of this organization. I had a wonderful friend who died some years ago. I don't know, uh, Richard Hauser. He was an Austrian Jew. He ran something called the Institute of Human Rights Responsibilities. And I did work for him in this area for some time. And um, he also talked about the religious psychical aspects of human rights. He was into psychic phenomena and graphology and um, how maybe these can help uh, improve the human behavior, just as an after, he was very close friend of the late Sigmund Freud. I just asked you whether you feel that psychic phenomena have any role in terms of improving human behavior. I didn't hear that. A psychic phenomena, para-psychological phenomena. Oh, no. uh -huh. okay. We'll take a couple more questions or uh, other interventions. I have one of my own, which, uh, which was about the resonance of rights language on the ground in Africa um, and the work that you've done. Clearly, what you are saying is that the critique which says this, this uh, framework is simply not relevant or patronizing or colonial or something is not your experience. And that's amongst those who are activists and are using the law. What's your sense about how the idea of human rights is engaged with by the man on the Westlands Matatu, who's, uh, or woman indeed, but to adopt that phrase, well, how do you, what's your sense about the, the, the resonance of, of, of rights language in terms of bringing change and its usefulness or not usefulness in that regard? Maybe you can repeat the first question because I found it a bit difficult to hear. The it's psychological... The, the, what is the, the implications of, of, I think, of... of, 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 of Religion. Of broader concept, yeah, oh, psychological okay. Okay. appreciation of rights ideas, I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'd take the first one. I mean, I don't think it's... 
I don't think I'm stating anything that people wouldn't know, but obviously many systems within Africa are dualistic. So customary religious law uh, exists, coexists with statutory law. Um, and I guess the biggest conflict is in matters of family and personal law, where many constitutions have reserved um, or sort of made sure that customary religious law supersedes equality rights in, in that particular area. That's changing. Um, the protocol that I mentioned on women's rights has helped spark some processes of law reform. The constitutional change movements um, have sparked removals of some of those clawbacks. Um, but I would say, and you probably all know this, that there's sort of two approaches to dealing with that dualism um, beyond getting the law changed. One is a large section of the women's movement believes that because so many people live under the ambit of customary and religious law, they have invested a whole amount of work in questions of reinterpretation, questions of pushing rights through that or rights-oriented approaches to religion and customary law. And then there's another sort of the other extreme end of that is are the people who, and in the first I would include, for instance, um, groups like Musawa who are running this campaign on, on family personal law in, uh, in Islam. And then the other extreme are sort of the secularists who are like, listen, we've tried that. No matter how far you try, you'll end up in a block. Rights will always supersede. And I think an example of that in terms of a collective movement would be women living under Muslim law. Um, they think you can only go so far. Um, I am agnostic as to the approach. I'm quite practical. If it works to sort of say that female genital mutilation is not you know, required by Islam and educate imams and local leaders on that, that's fine. Um, if it doesn't work, then you know, move to the other kind of extreme. So, yeah, I mean, people are always living under d different influences, and I think people are always trying to push the boundaries of those influences, no matter what body of law they live under. Um, in terms of the resonance of rights language, I mean, most people have a sense of something being fair or unfair. Um, something being right or wrong, something being just or unjust. I think that is actually universal. There's no one who will get slapped on the head and sort of think that that's okay, or there's no one. Um, so again, it's just framing. It's it's how you approach it. You can you can approach it in a really unhelpful, useless way, like. Well, you know, the new domestic violence law says that marital rape cannot happen. Or you can just say how, approach it from how it feels to be that person. So I think the language resonates or the idea behind this is acceptable to be treated in this way and this is unacceptable, that's pretty universal. So yes, it resonates, I would say. <laughs> Good. Other questions? Uh, yes, there and there and there. Yeah. Wait for the mic, please, and introduce yourself. Hi. Um, so y y you talked about um, theory of change um, and how uh, letters to uh, governments um, in uh, in Africa doesn't uh, doesn't cut it. And so, what is your proposed alternative uh, theory of change uh, pertaining to human rights in the global south? Thank you. We'll take another more. This gentleman here. <clears throat> Hi, I'm uh, Daniel. 
I'm a student at Harris Westminster. And my question to you is about uh, alienable rights. So if you have a right for certain groups, you mentioned uh, women having certain rights or Muslim people having certain rights. Isn't there like an inherent problem in having alienable rights that only apply to certain people? Because then you get people manipulating them right, those rights and using them to kind of to kind of take advantage of the state and you know in a way that those rights were not intended to be used for in the first place. And I feel like um, if we leave the government to decide those rights for us, then they're always up to interpretation, and people can use them in corrupt ways. Okay, and there was woman there. Yeah. Um, my name is Ina. I'm a student here at the LSE, but I also work for Amnesty International. Um, and what, what you said about naming and shaming really resonated with me. Um, working in communications, we often saw what we were against, but not often what we were for. Um, and so I was just wondering, um, based on your um, ideas of policy change, how can we um, insert a a level of optimism, as you brought here today to me, specifically in rethinking human rights, um, to the uh, movements of change uh, to ensure uh, universal human rights. Okay, we'll come back to the, come back to you, but um, pause and give you a chance to answer. Okay. <clears throat> um, to the colleague here, um, I think at the very beginning I spoke about the fact that. On the one hand, it is very useful to have treaty-based, legally binding commitments, obligations on states. But I also said that is that that body of treaty-based, legally binding commitments is forever expanding as more and more people collectively mobilize to get some sort of injustice recognized. We didn't used to have a convention concerning people with disabilities. We certainly didn't have you know, the set of principles that have been derided from various treaties around um, rights to do with sexual orientation and gender identity a, a while ago. Uh, we didn't have a body of law about women's rights. I mean, and I guess what I'm saying is as, as it, it, I don't think we'll ever see an end to it as long as there is some sort of injustice in the world and some sort of group of people that feels that they need special protection. I don't personally have a problem with e equality law expanding indefinitely um, as long as people or a group of people are feeling oppressed. Do people take advantage of it? Yes, but people take advantage of everything. I mean, when you think about all the protections that were put in place to maybe sort of ensure fair division of property upon the dissolution of marriage, those were originally things, and custody, custody law, those were things that were put in place to protect women's rights on dissolution of marriage. Um, have some women used it in ways that may be sort of considered extreme to parent, male parents or, yeah, but on the broader sort of need of the time for women's rights to be recognized in and outside of marriage and their claim to property to be recognized even if they aren't the ones that bought the house or whose name was not on the house, the, the immovable objects, that's fine. Um, because in the end, it is about sort of advancing recognition of people who get the short end of the stick. Um, 
So, I mean, there are risks and there are downsides to everything, but moving slowly towards more rights recognition, I think, is a good thing. Um, in terms of theory of change, I guess here the argument was, you know, states are not like children, or even children. Children don't like having, you know, fingers wagged in their face. You know, you were really bad. Yes, okay, I was really bad. What are you meant to do beyond being really bad? And this is the question about sort of theory of change. And the more, and I guess it was especially from my time at Amnesty, Many times when we engage with states on a question, of course there's some that are just recalcitrant, um, or people within states who are just recalcitrant and you know, unapologetic about whatever horrors they're inflicting on people. But when you're dealing for the most part with sort of civil service types in say a policy sector or in one line ministry on, I don't know, education or on social protection, I mean, genuinely, they're trying to do the best they can. And they're like, okay, we know we're violating a right, but you know, it's a field of competing ideas around how to ensure, in one case, education, and in another case, social protection. It's also a field of competing you know, envelopes, budget envelopes. And I think what sometimes they wanted from us was actually propositional arguments putting forward our theory of which policy change would be helpful, not just here's all the evidence to prove that you violated the rights of a whole bunch of people. Or they wanted deeper arguments about the pitfalls. Um, I remember being involved in one huge process around compensation to internally displaced people. And we had to help the government build the database of who had lost what precisely. They didn't have the capacity to do that. So it's sort of saying, you know, it's not enough. Well, that was one part of the argument. It's not enough just to sort of wag your, your, your hand at people. You have to get to know them and sort of think, okay, what are the constraints in this, in this sort of sector and ministry? What can we do to address those constraints? What's our argument? or our take on what public policy position or practice would help. Um, and frankly, most amnesty was certainly very ill-equipped to do it. I mean, many people were just drawn from the legal profession. It wasn't interdisciplinary. Um, many people had very little experience of engaging with African governments as and people working within the state as as you know, real people who don't always want to, you know, be party to committing mass atrocities. Um, so, yeah, and sometimes, like I said, the letter writing thing, the solidarity, I think that was something that we were really debating. How do you show solidarity, right? And there were two questions there. One was, how do you build up solidarity across the continent? where everyone in their own situation has so much to deal with, like the capacity to show solidarity, even if instinctively you feel it, you're like, oh my God, that's terrible that this is happening somewhere. But the infrastructure, the energy, the, is just not in place. And then the other question we were, and that worked across the global south, um, but the other question was, for, for people who do have the energy and do have the time, what does solidarity mean beyond a letter or beyond 
how how is it helpful and you know sometimes like i said in individual cases the minister or the whoever was being this mass of letters was just like can you tell your people to stop sending us these letters we will release the person like but that that's individual cases that's not again the deeper question of systemic change um so then what is a useful way for the world to act with people experiencing something in another situation. I don't think we came to answers, but we certainly knew it was a question that we needed to engage. Also, because still in this transition, the amnesty was going through, I don't know if it's still going through it. Well, it's going through yet another transition. Um, still, a lot of the money came from really well-meaning little grannies giving 10 pounds of their pension money dutifully every month to their amnesty chapter and dutifully showing up for meetings in small little places to, and that's a good impulse, right? But how do you channel that impulse in a way that is meaningful to them, but also meaningful to people on the ground? Um, it's a question. So, yeah, I think they were both, both on the, the two questions there were similar, so I think you've answered both of them. But I think that's great. What is the meaning of solidarity, I think, is a really challenging one because you have, I mean, people in this room who, you know, who are... Probably give money. What is it that we can best do? Uh, and honestly, I think it's, you know, restructuring has been radical in terms of trying to rethink that. But it is... Uh, one sees even with uh, African organizations engaging at the African Union level, even to have the headspace to engage with the African Union when you've got so much to do at your own national level is also a challenge for so many organizations mm. as well. No, for um, sure. I mean, how do you think of the effectiveness of the, at the African Union human rights system in terms of bringing change, leaving aside the UN system? I think it's been huge. I mean, if you look even 15 years back, no, maybe 20 years back, um, when, you know, the commission, the African commission was just getting going, um, very few governments bothered about who was nominated as commissioners, very few governments bothered to send delegations, but civil society and the African human rights community started taking it seriously and started sort of demanding visits, filing complaints. Uh, the commission started dealing with it, and all of a sudden, I mean, now, if you look at how contested the positions are, um, the commission has become quite embattled itself. Um, they've given amazing judgments in a range of cases. Um, they've been a pretty good interlocutor, say, in the early days of the Darfur crisis. The reason the Africa Group as instructed by the AU didn't block the referral of Sudan to the ICC was because of the organizing of African civil society and the fact that the commission's own report said something needed to be done about Darfur. So I think it's, it's, it's evolved, it's grown immensely, it has huge potential. It's right now very under threat, um, you know, <laughs> which in a way, yeah, is maybe a testament to its work. Um, the protagonist or the sort of Egypt is extremely unhappy with it. There are like 80 complaints filed against Egypt, and Egypt is using the whole question of the registration of the Coalition of African le uh, Lesbians to sort of wage a counterattack. So, but these things always struggle. And again, it comes back to what I said. There's no advance that's permanent or linear or, you know, you... you you see something, you make use of it, 
people are like, oh my God, they're making use of it. Oh my God, this body is actually telling us that we need to do something about something. And then, of course, there's going to be a backlash. Yeah. There was a woman here who I missed out last time around. Have you got the mic? I yeah. don't know. Is this working? I don't know. Yes. Uh, my name is Elvira Dominguez Redondo. I am an uh, associate professor of international law at Middlesex University. I can see at least two colleagues more from Middlesex University, so we are obviously big fans here. Um, I have two questions, if that's okay. And the first one is related to this naming and shaming, which is something I have spent a lot of time looking into. But one of the questions that remains in my mind, I mean, I understand well the limitations of this naming and shaming, although I have looked at it more from the politicized side, but can you really be, as an organization, as a human rights organization, the one naming and shaming or looking after individual cases, and at the same time being the one cooperating with the countries and understanding the limitations it's a bit like invading Iraq and trying to rebuild the country after. I, I, I think this is, there's questions of trust and questions of reach of the organization's mandates that need to be addressed and whether or not you can actually do it all, if you can be the lawyer and the diplomat and the developer. And, I mean, and this always is in my mind. And I have a second question, which is about this language on north and south and how it might or might not be useful from a very pragmatic point of view to, to actually entrenched positions that are not really reflected in practice. So just today, totally by randomly, um, I was looking at something about the idea of creating a world court on human rights, which is something that has always been associated to Australia and Switzerland and to very specific European academics, mainly in the 2000, 2010. And I found a document from 1968 where the Attorney General of Nigeria was pushing and putting proposals forward in the United Nations for a World Court on Human Rights. I've been looking into these issues forever, and this is the first time I find the African proposal, by chance. Um, and I, my more I look into these things, more I see that what is categorized as a north position or a south position does not really correspond with voting patterns or with actual proposals that the states put forward. So how useful you find keeping this language and, and whether we should reformulate it or not. Thank you for That's quite a lot in one go, so I'll let you respond <laughs> to, to that. On the question of inside and outside, I mean, I'm not saying that you or the human rights community gives up its critical outsider position and its ability to really continually stand with survivors um, who we say we're standing for. What I'm saying is to be effective in getting the needs of survivors, it's not enough to show that their rights are violated. It, we have to become more propositional, and that doesn't necessarily mean becoming best friends. It means dealing with African, in my case, governments in the same way that Amnesty or would deal with Western governments. So what I'm objecting to has been this idea that to influence African states, we don't deal with states directly, except in terms of right of reply, but we will then feed our recommendations to the whole bunch of diplomats and sort of 3D 
sort of communities that are resident in a place on the assumption that they have influence. And it's like, why? Why would you do that? Like, why would you not engage with whoever the protagonists are as equally bounded, rational beings um, who have interests, yes, but also you know, have mixed, equally mixed motives. That's, that's more what I meant. So it's not that you're moving from being a critic to being let me hug up with a government that's, you know, evil in many ways, or at least parts of it can be evil. But you're recognizing that it's, it's equally complicated, and you have to be a bit deeper if you want to reach... Um, you have to actually develop the same kind of relationships that you would have with... Western governments with your own governments. I, I, and that seems so obvious, but it's, it's not been obvious in practice. Um, that's on the first one. On the second one, I mean, it's certainly real because power imbalances exist at real levels in the world, right? If you look at the kind of atmosphere that's been created around norms that even 10 years ago, we thought were good things. Responsibility to protect, for instance. There is not a single African member state who does not respond to that instantly, thinking that that is not about responsibility to protect its citizens. It's an excuse for regime change. That, that is simply how they read it, especially in the wake of the Libyan, the Libyan crisis. Um, so real power exists. So how do you get beyond uh, real power? And, and you have to recognize, okay, do African states actually have an argument on this issue? And you know, all of the organizations that I've been involved with, African, international, have spent an inordinate amount of time over the past five years trying to fix the relationship or understand what the dynamics are to fix the relationship between the AU and, the, and through the AU, the Africa Group at the ASP, and the ICC. Why? Because questions of power matter, um, just as they do internally. Now, I think the danger, or what we can often fall into there, is that we have, you know, you can have domestic groups who are so focused on the power of their own state that actually global power sort of seems almost irrelevant to, to what they're battling with on the ground. And then you have the ones who sort of work on bigger platforms, regional or international level, who are very aware. You have to do both, is what I'm saying. There's power locally and there's power regionally and internationally. So yes, I mean, these terms are all very unsatisfactory. But what, they're, what they really are is sort of short form for differences in power that still exist for real. Um, not maybe differences in sort of values and aspirational things um, in the sense that you were talking about. And that's why I talked about the African contributions to the, IS, uh, to the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. But they matter in terms of how we address real problems of people who have to live through these things on the ground. Uh, you've already spoken once, so I will come get, I'll take some others, but you will come back at the end. Down here, and there's somebody right at the back up there. Can you have the mic back, please? Uh, so there's a woman down here, and then there's somebody right at the back, and over there, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Katarina. I'm also involved with Amnesty. I hope I can form, formulate a coherent question. So... It's, so I'm coming from a standpoint of I, I believe very strongly in the practice of nonviolence and nonviolent communication. 
And I think fundamentally my question is about your view of humanity and humans. Um, and again, this relates to the, the naming and shaming um, aspect. So I personally have an issue with when um, in some of our messaging, Amnesty says we're fighting the bad guys. So I don't like that enemy image. It's not part of nonviolence. I strongly believe that we have most impact when we talk about how we're concerned about people, how we're shocked, how we're saddened that people are losing their rights, rights are being violated, people are being killed, people suffer from hunger. Um, and I do strongly want to believe that all humans have the capacity for empathy and to, to hear other people suffering. But I wonder in your work, because you've worked in the field for so long and you've probably seen the worst of the worst and you've probably met with people who are in some way involved with, I don't know, have a military who shoot down uh, protestators, demonstrators in the street who haven't hurt anyone, who don't help people get their rights rectified, um, who've, I don't know, all sorts of things. Um, so how does that affect you personally? How can you continue to engage with people? Do you sometimes kind of lose trust that humanity can get better? Or do you have enough inspiring examples to think there is so much good in humans? Or Because you also talked about how the reasons for rights being violated are quite complex and organizations are complex so it's kind of yeah I'd like to know more about how you experience and how it affects you okay thank you gentleman right at the back there uh, and then there was a, a, another person over here if you can go and find them yeah. yes my issue is the the question you mentioned in terms of the inability to protect with reference to southern you can introduce yourself as well southern countries of the G77 say mainly Africa Asia or basically outside European peninsula. You mentioned the inability to protect and the question of structural change within those organizations such as Amnesty and the ones who tend to front the human rights agenda for the world. In my experience, there seems to be a lack of representation of those G770 countries of the South with particular reference to Africa in your experience, do you not believe we need a, a radical structural change within those institutions in order that there is a, a slight probability of implementing human rights globally? Uh, hello, uh, my name is Victoria. I'm a former LLM student uh, here at the LSE. Um, my question concerns the sort of global context that we're sort of living at the moment in which uh, there's, there's no real public buy-in for human rights. So people, there are sort of anti-LGBT movements, anti-gender movements, and anti-gender ideology are growing such that the general public no longer believe in human rights if they ever did or are very skeptical and critical themselves. Um, I wonder how that connects to this sort of um, critique as well, whether human rights need to be rethought essentially globally so that they have more buy-in from ordinary people to be properly used by all. Thank you. Mm. On the personal question, I mean, we act for ourselves and we act for the survivors and victims that we work with. Um, and we act in solidarity with a whole community. Um, I think I've been, and certainly I'm in this work because ultimately I want a country and a continent that I can live in myself 
uh, and that everyone can live in. Um, so how, how you manage it, I mean, I think you manage it by, you know, any piece of work you do, you meet these amazing people who are doing these amazing things with far less resources and, like, you know, some of the best human rights activists I've met have come from really rural areas or with very little education, and it comes down to your question of buy-in. And what I said earlier, I think, I think people are actually quite amazing in terms of this is wrong, I want to do something about it, and getting on with doing it. And I've always been part of a very strong community of political actors and not just... Um, not just in Kenya, but Africa writ large. And I'm, I'm really privileged to have developed that community. So I don't really think in terms of, I mean, my frustration is in some situations that are, that are where we've worked, you know, and here I'm thinking of, say, survivors of mass violence in, in Kenya post-2007 or South Sudanese or Eastern Congolese, where, you know, they have done everything that they can and should. They've come forward. They've told their stories. They've told them not just to local organizations but to international organizations. They've registered as victims for the ICC. They've formed victim support groups. They've, I mean, they've done everything that they could possibly do, and there's been no relief. No relief in terms of justice, which they want, um, in actual retributive I want that perpetrator to go to jail, or there's been no justice in terms of complete dispossession. I mean, some of the areas you're like, where you see people displaced from, you're like, they had nothing. They were not bothering anybody. They were just, you know, getting along with their little subsistence farming thing. They weren't asking for anything. They didn't have great expectations of the state, but they had some sort of life. Even that is taken away from them. That's frustrating when you've worked with a group of survivors for so many years and you feel ashamed to face them because they've dutifully done everything they could that they could think of doing and everything that you said would be helpful for, to them to get justice. That's frustrating. But, but I mean, generally the, the community of, of, I think, people within the African human rights community are amazing. Um, and many of these survivors are amazing. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't. Yeah, people do terrible things. They. But yeah, I. I don't know. That's life. That's the world, right? But equally, the things that people do for themselves or to better their own situation. Um, that's also part of life. So I don't know. I don't really think much about the. <laughs> How am I feeling about it? Um, yeah. In terms of the question from the back, the only reason I took the amnesty job was on the promise that it was transforming. They headhunted me for the job on the basis that they were in the middle of this transition, moving resources and power to the global south, growing the movement in the global south. That's why I took the job, and that's why I did it as seriously as I would never have worked for that kind of organization. I come from the domestic human rights community. So yes, I think we went some distance, like I said, in terms of hiring from the regions, in terms of beginning to think about changing methodology, in terms of pushing things. I think 
somehow that momentum, from what I can tell, has gotten a bit lost, and there may be a retreat. Um, we never did grow the movement in the same way in the Global South as it, as it exists within the North. So do I think the big INGOs that work on human rights need structural change? Yes, definitely, 100%. That's why I took that job. And I'm, I mean, there's so much that's wrong with, with, with how they practice um, human rights. Um, I mean, there's a lot. Now, if we were in a Kenyan audience I, uh, or an African audience, I could also say a lot that I think is wrong with the way our African community practices human rights. But that wasn't really the purpose of this, and that's not this audience. So I'm not, um, but yes, I mean, again, it's questions of power, right? It's power and, yeah, taking, as I concluded, the question of taking African agencies seriously, um, seriously as, as practitioners, as theoreticians, as states, which just isn't in the way that, you know, INGOs practice human rights. Um, in terms of public buy-in, I think that relates a bit to Bronwyn's question around does the language resonate. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm following the debate around what's happening here with Brexit, with the Gilets Jaunes, with Trump and all his madness. And, and yes, that seems to be very much part of the narrative here. But at home, does that mean that people still don't care about justice or don't care, I completely don't believe that. I mean, if you look at just the kind of protest that you can see within commu small communities around questions of water, around questions of um, sanitation, or you look what happened in the Sudan, which is a situation I've been following extremely closely, or you look at the sort of opening within Ethiopia, I mean, there's no way you can say that rights don't matter. That's what these struggles have been about. Um, so, I don't know. There's almost a question there that actually yeah. the right is having, that, that language is having more resonance in African countries than a way that, or at least amongst a certain constituency in the UK, for example, being seen as yeah. rights are about prisoners and terrorists and foreigners, right, not about us. Right, yeah, so it's been, but that's the question of reducing rather than sort of saying these norms are there to assist people's real struggles or to be seized upon and used to advance people's real struggles, it's sort of if the debate gets close to why is the European court telling us what to do? Um, I mean, that's not helpful. But if you look at the broad, the broad framing or where it comes from, these are all struggles for human dignity. They're struggles for freedom. Um, that will never change anywhere, not even here. I mean, as long as there are people who are oppressed, um, people will organize, and I don't really care. Like, I think what I was trying to say is, I have no problem, even though I'm not a lawyer, using the language of human rights, because it was helpful um, in some cases and in some ways. It's a frame, but does it change the underlying impetus towards what people are, are pushing for? No, not really. And that won't change, I don't think. So I'm not, I'm not one of these sort of dire, oh my God, doesn't resonate, doesn't buy in, doesn't make sense. Of course it makes sense. I mean, every day here, I've been kind of amazed by, I've been here for about a year and a half. I was forced to be here um, as I took up this job. But every day on the news, there's a segment that has something to do with how social protection has changed within the UK. And I was like, I've been kind of amazed. I'm like, I didn't know there were so many angles you could take to reduction of benefits 
or crises within the NHS. I mean, those are right struggles, right? If, if families are unable to take care of kids with special needs or pensioners who are old, and I mean, it, those are all right struggles, and they're front page news every day. It's amazing. Um, it certainly matters to those who have those children or have to take care of those elderly parents or, you know, so I don't know. I think it's maybe what we understand by rights or limiting our understanding just to the law. Um, but it's not. It's about a whole system that states set up to, to protect and advance us, right? Or let us realize, actualize ourselves. Okay. You're keen to have another go, so I'll give you the, the mic. But we'll start there with a lady who's got... Oh, well, okay, come here. And then there's a woman there, and there was somebody at the back up there. Uh, and you can come in as well, yeah. Go ahead. Yes. You. Should I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I didn't uh, introduce myself when I was asking um, uh, previously. Uh, I'm Hesim. I've lived my life, my whole life in Pakistan. I study in the U.S. Um, Following up on your response to a previous question uh, regarding uh, the R2P uh, doctrine um, and how African leaders see it as nothing but an excuse for regime change, do you think the West has given them good reason to believe um, that, um, that it is in fact uh, a misuse of power um, and a, an excuse for uh, aggression um, and you, you I mean you take the case of Libya? You mentioned yourself, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, is there is there any hope um, in 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 getting them to actually believe that the R two P is still um, an important doctrine to have and that and to regain the the lost trust essentially? Thank you. Very good. Uh, one right up the back there. Yep. Yeah. Did you have the mic? Well, actually, while you've got it, go I've ahead. I've got yeah. one, so shall I? I yeah, my ahead. name is Claire Frank. I'm a visitor here. But um, I have been the recipient of um, aid, having been in the Caribbean after a devastating hurricane. And I think it's really a comment that I wanted to make, which is that I think we are, um, because there is not the right response to events like that, from the international aid organizations or a slow response or whatever. We're becoming more critical of those organizations and we're seeing the rise of things like GoFundMe and other ways of helping which people feel are much more effective. And I certainly believe that um, that shows that there are people who care about all kinds of things all over the world and they want a more effective solution to them. There was somebody right in front as well, but we'll take your question at the, Sorry. At the back. Uh, hi. Uh, Kate Larson. Um, I was with Human Rights Watch for a while a few years ago after um, living and working in China and Asia on uh, labor rights and environmental for many years. Um, and so, uh, thank you, um, <laughs> Muthoni. It's been fascinating um, hearing you're very frank and honest. And I would acknowledge the humble insights, um, especially around human rights defenders on the ground, who, as you say, are some of the most inspiring people. Um, I wanted to ask about um, 
if perhaps building on the question just now um, on the regime change risk or fear um, of governments. Um, in the case of China, there are perhaps one to three million Uyghur people in concentration camps right now. Um, and many of us are advocating around that release. And whilst I'm involved in the theory of change around how we might influence for that release, um, the other half of the question is, how is there anything we could learn from our remediations in African states where such extreme violations have occurred um, for a state to safely release, in this case, one to two million people and somehow gain, retain face is probably <laughs> the only words I can think of, too. Um, but also with their sort of, I wouldn't really call them genuine, but fears of security risk or whatever, um, which has been their argument for um, uh, these people being imprisoned and in some cases tortured. Thank okay, you. The one last one here. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I do personally believe uh, that this, that Can the, you I'm Linda, I'm a student right now, and I wanted to ask that, uh, I do personally believe that the African countries will develop and that they will implement something to the global world just as Eastern Asian countries did right now. but. I would like to ask if the human rights, which are quite global, uh, can be implemented to all countries as they were created mostly by the Western world. And if yes, then uh, should the human rights be uh, changed a bit to some new specialized countries? Thank you. I mean, to the last question, I think what I was trying to get to was I don't think that the norms and treaties of human rights have been solely a Western creation. They haven't. Um, the economic, I mean, I use the example again of the Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. It's really countries from the global south that you know, we're strongly behind that, together with countries from the former Soviet bloc, in terms of articulating the kinds of rights that were important to them at the time. That's one thing. I've also talked about the sort of norm development within the region. Those are things that we've developed for ourselves. I don't think, and the other point I made is that as long as there is a group that feels they need protection from the state, for something or a positive obligation of states to do something um, to advance rights, I think you'll always find that one direction of that struggle goes towards codification and trying to get a legal kind of element to it. But if we take rights as just, you know, like I say, the right to actualize, to live in dignity, to have freedom, to you know, become the best person that you, that's, that, that is actually quite global. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how to answer it more. Relative, I don't think that yearning, that human expression is something, again, that's very different across the world. I think maybe the challenges, barriers are different just because of different cultural contexts, different religious contexts, different ex historical experiences, um, different levels of resources, but 
Yeah, I don't, I don't actually think the human condition is, is that different anymore. So it's just we're all battling with different things because of that big combination of factors. Were we colonized? Were we not? Did we go through slavery? Did we not? Um, do we have resources or not? Um, yeah, um, that's not a very clear answer, but it's trying to say again what, I've, what I said earlier. In terms of, ha I mean, I'm not a China expert in any way, shape, or form, um, so I don't really know how to answer that. But I guess the bigger question is, how do you deal with two arguments? One, the security argument, and two, the idea that sometimes naming and shaming is so humiliating that you create in a, in a sense a backlash of its own or a resistance of its own or you push people into a corner from which they need a kind of dignified exit. Um, I think the only way to get around that sort of thing is by engaging with those people um, and not sort of, you're so bad and evil, um, even if it is bad and evil, um, but just sort of what is really the deeper thinking? Why is this happening? Um, and that's something that sometimes perhaps we don't spend enough energy and time doing. But let me not pretend I know anything about that situation or have anything useful to answer because I don't. Um, on security, I mean, I guess it's sort of how, how the narrative is seized. And I think that's another area of work that the human rights community in Africa and the Global South and the North needs to do better on in this time. I think if you're confronted daily with the sort of argument that you know criminality is rising, that we're at risk from of terrorist attack, we, we um, you know, the state is going all out to protect us, but you know anything could happen at any time. It's obvious that people, a lot of people, will be afraid. I mean, I've had arguments with my aunt around police killings, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you know this just happened, this boy was shot, and my aunt was like, but those were criminals. I was like, what are you saying? Um, and she's like, you can't, you know, there are just too many young people who are dispossessed, and how we, I mean, to her mind, it was, it's per perfectly rational to get rid of them in that way. And we had this terrible, this is my aunt. So if my own aunt can speak like that. I find it unsurprising that, for instance, a week ago, Afrobarometer, which is this big African polling country, released one of its most recent sort of data sets or polls showing that, you know, support with, across Africa for freedom of association, uh, for things like media freedom are going down in the face of security. They're still sort of above 50%, but definitely less than they were in the 90s. And I was like, that's really frightening. How has that happened? But of course, if you're being bombarded every day with, you know, young people are a threat to your life, um, I mean, it's completely unsurprising. And I don't think we do enough around sort of cultural work, um, around, you know, getting young, these young people, these young males usually, um, to, to speak for themselves, to also sort of explain themselves, organize, be able to put their voice back. So if you, the only thing you hear every day is a police has shot a criminal, it's not even the police has shot a suspected criminal or the police have shot a terrorist. Um, yeah, I mean, we're shaped by the news we get, so.
maybe that's an area that we need to do more. On your question about relief, I mean, I think you're right. Like, people do want more direct ways of exercising solidarity. They don't trust that the aid industry will de deliver it. I don't work in aid. I don't work on relief. But you can see there's skepticism around why is our why, first of all, why are we giving this much money? Why are we giving it to the places that we're giving it to? Um, and people don't feel they have control and that it's exercising a sort of care that, so yes, I think more and more people, especially young people, are really good at sort of crowdsourcing, finding you know, their counterparts across the world deliberately sort of engaging, and maybe we'll see more of that, but that said, as long as I think you have a government that has a foreign policy that says, in defense, we're giving this much, in diplomacy, we're doing this, in development, we're doing this, I think people shouldn't walk away from that. That's their money. I mean, they should demand that it's used in the ways that they want it to be used. And I think it's about building a constituency of people in the North around foreign policy um, that stays on those questions. Um, because we can't, I mean, that's that's, that's your money, that's your, your taxes. And it's yes, it's great that all these more direct channels are being found to more agile outfits um, that people have more faith in. Um, and of course, you know, the world is so, people have moved so much, people actually, you know, there are Kenyans here who probably sent money home in 2007, and that's probably the case with every community in the world. Um, but yeah, as long as the state is extracting stuff from us in the name of doing something, I think we should pay attention to it and demand accountability. Um, yeah. And the last question was here about can we rescue R2P from the idea that it's about regime change? I mean, I think, I think it's about the debate being internal. As long as there's some sort of power issue and some sort of annoyance, I can tell you whenever this comes up within AU circles, it's the Libyan example. And I don't know if you know precisely what happened, but basically the AU had organized you know, a team to go in for some negotiations to happen. Gaddafi had agreed. They were about to send the team in. And they were told by NATO, if you go in, we'll bomb you. And the AU, its whole sort of core of international civil servants that work within the AU, they have not forgiven that, like not 10 years later. So, but if you engage them outside of that frame on this situation in South Sudan is beyond appalling. I mean, of course they get that, you know, um, or the situation in Eastern DRC. Um, of course they get that, but it has to be outside of that frame because the minute an external interlocutor is present, it just reverts to that polarization. Um, and you know, you can see that happening a bit now with the discussions on Sudan and, and Bashir. So we're working a lot on that with the civic forces on the ground. And the civic forces, their argument is, we don't want Bashir to go to The Hague because number one, that's just for Darfur. He has to account for the two areas. He has to account for the whole country for 30 years of crimes and we want him tried here. Um, and then there's a funnier sort of side argument. Besides in The Hague, he'll be treated like he's in a five-star hotel. <laughs> um, they're like, no, we want him in prison here where he kept all of us there. But you know, at the same time, there are all these voices beginning to pop out outside of Sudan who are like, okay, 
what's the position of the TMC on sending Bashir to the ICC? I'm like, can you listen to what the Sudanese are saying, right? Darfur is not enough for them. They want the whole package of 30 years dealt with. Um, and yeah, I guess we just have to listen. And that is not a position counter to justice, because even the TMC is saying, isn't saying we won't hand them over. They're saying we'll wait until the transitional government is in place for the transitional government to make the decision, which to me makes all kinds of sense, also from a security point of view, given that the same generals running the TMC are you know, ex-generals of Bashir. So yeah, I don't know. We just need to listen and let the debates sort of arise from the ground. Do yeah. human rights do human rights better, which is where you yes. where you started off. We've run out of time, um, but you are most welcome to join us for a drink outside uh, and to continue the conversation. And please, could you thank Mozoni for her thoughts? <laughs>